We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. That was the voice of Patagonia's Yvonne Chouinard, and this is Type 2, a podcast from Looking Sideways, in association with Patagonia, that explores the intersection between outdoors, action sports, and activism. Now, in each show, I'm meeting people who are using their passion and involvement with the cultures we all love to create change. We've been discussing the issues they're involved in, the change they're seeking to create, the difficulties involved, and the rewards that follow. Now, my guest for this episode of Type 2 is Reese Pacheco. Even in a field crammed with extremely motivated individuals, Reese manages to stand out. He is exec director of WSL Pure, the WSL's non-profit with a mission to inspire the global surf community to lead the way in protecting the ocean. He's also in charge of the sustainability program for the World Surf League itself, or SVP of Ocean Responsibility, to give him his full title. And as if that wasn't enough, he also hosts the WSL Pure One Ocean podcast too. All of which, by my reckoning, makes him extremely busy across a lot of fronts. And as ever, I was interested in finding out exactly how Reese got to his current position and what he's learned, particularly when it comes to the WSL's efforts to engage the surf community, both through their ambassadors and individual campaigns. What I found interesting about Reese's work and one of the reasons that I wanted to interview him for the show is that essentially he came to his current role with a clean slate and he's been tasked with helping the WSL lead the way on matters of environmentalism and sustainability in the surf industry, essentially from scratch, which is a really interesting counterpoint to last month's conversation with Chris Hines, for example, about the genesis of Surfers Against Sewage. As you'll know if you've listened to that one, that organisation was came about because they were focusing on one specific issue. And from there, that has developed into this group with huge reach and influence. So as ever, I was interested in digging into Reese's background to find out exactly how his own personal experiences and passion for this cause has led him to this point, and also to find out his views on the challenges the industry currently faces. So that's what we did. I'll be back at the end. But in the meantime, here's me and Reese. Enjoy. All right, nice. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I'm all right, man. Not quite as we planned it, is it? <laughs> we had we, we had great plans to meet in London, didn't we? Um, we did. To sit down in person and do this. Yeah. Yeah, I was and I was looking forward to it, but oh well. Yeah, and then obviously everything got cancelled. Like so literally, you're in like Calif- literally everything. <laughs> yeah, literally everything got cancelled. Yeah, um, and you're in. So you're back in California. Yep. Um, and you are currently locked down in your house. You've been telling me. I am. Welcome to uh, WSL Pure headquarters for the foreseeable future. <laughs> yeah. So how, how how's it going? How are you finding it? Yeah, it's all right. Um, you know, I started kind of self-quarantining a bit uh, last week or so. Um, I, I like working from home a lot because it allows you to focus. Our office tends to be really noisy and busy and all that. So I actually will love to work from home for a solid chunk of the day and just be really focused. And then I would go in just for a couple meetings. Um, but now it's been a week plus or a little over a week and, um, you're starting to miss human contact. One of my uh, teammates and I had a meeting yesterday where we met at a park and sat at a 
long distance. <laughs> That's a nice idea. It, it was. It was. It was nice. It was. You know, it was a meeting that required a little bit more depth, and um, it was nice to just be outside. And we both said like how much we missed other people. You know, like I love yeah. my wife. He loves his wife and his son. But he's like, you know, it's just nice to interact with some other people once in a while, not through a screen. Um, so, uh, you know, it's a little weird. Um, what I have noticed is there are a lot more people outside actually than normally. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that. I've noticed that here as well. Like it, it's true, isn't it? People are taking walks. People are going out and they just want to go for a walk because they're stuck, stuck being indoors. Normally my neighborhood is pretty quiet. People get up, get in their car, go to work and then come home. Uh, and you don't see them throughout the day, but now I'm seeing tons of people around my neighborhood. So everyone's home. Yeah. Um, I really noticed that cause I've got a dog. So I've been taking the dog out twice a day, which has suddenly become like this lovely ritual you know i always enjoyed it anyway but it's really nice now that's awesome we've got a national park we've got a national park just behind our house super um you know like about like a 20 20 well not even 10 minute drive away um and it's yeah it's great like it's and 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 i've noticed the same like there's a lot of people around because i think people are obviously really having to um take these moments while they can eh? you know and and kind of appreciate them more and I think it feels like people are being nicer to each other. You know, it feels like there's this kind of common sort of we're all in this together. Okay, you stay on that side of the sidewalk. I'll be over here. You know, everyone's kind of just keeping a little bit dis- a little bit of distance because of COVID-19 and the social distancing and everything. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to find the silver lining in all this. I can't say it's not scary. I can't say it's not, um, you know, wild times. But uh, at the same time, just trying to, like, you know, make the most of what this time is, try to be focused on work, um, trying to use the internet as much as we can to stay connected to, you know, my teammates and, and our different partners and friends. And here we are doing this. So, um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. We've both adapted. <laughs> yeah. I think we both had a, I was saying to, to you, wasn't I like, Oh no, I don't do them on Skype. My listeners will, will know that. Cause I talk about it probably at, at tedious length. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've definitely, um, adapted my stringent editorial policies let's say for this one um but when we chatted the other day you were talking about going for a surf so are you still allowed to surf so i ended up not surfing that day and i feel really badly i appreciate you being flexible i was really keen to get out and then it's been raining here a ton and um yeah that's just what you need isn't it yeah and and in california when it rains a lot uh generally you shouldn't surf um all the you know sewage kind of overflows and there's all this crap in the water and so it's a little bit risky that you might get sick and so my wife and i were doing our homework and we were looking at surf riders page they have a page talking about um you know does COVID-19 transmit through the sewage ways and what's the likeliness of catching it and all this. And so we were kind of like, uh, maybe we just shouldn't go. And, um, you know, today's my birthday and I really wanted to go for a surf on my birthday. And we shut that down too, cause it rained again yesterday. And so I'm just kind of like, ah, oh, we don't just, it's just not worth it to get sick, um, from surfing, whether it's COVID-19 or any illness and then have to go to a doctor or go to the hospital. So we're just kind of playing it safe um you know there will there will be waves there'll be waves in the future so um that being said i think if the waves get really good maybe i'll go <laughs> so i've got well happy birthday by the thanks, way mate. Um, thanks mate thanks for taking the time to do it on your birthday <laughs> um yeah like friends of mine are locked down in france right now i've got a lot of friends living in the french alps and they were locked down i think sunday and apparently yesterday it was like right you can all go out you know and it was like exercise day so a few people went went out and about 
you know because because you can't you can't stay cooped up can you you've, you've got to do it like we've been saying or else mental health is going to suffer completely yeah yeah i agree i mean for all of us you know you're, you you speak to action sports people here and so you know we're all used to being able to get outside every day and do our thing every day and get that rush of adrenaline and that hit of nature and so it's it's hard for me i've just been going on long runs you know they're saying exercise is still <clears throat> okay during the quarantine so i've just been you know trying to do long runs so last saturday i did like eight miles in the rain i was like i don't care if it's raining i'm just i'm just going so i just kind of cruised um so you know we have to realize that people have lived through harder times i I love the internet meme that's been going around that are like your grandparents were called to war you're being asked to sit on the couch (laughs) deal with it um you know and there are a lot of people around the world who are going to have it really really hard so for those of us who live in you know the first world and um, developed world and have you know comfortable homes or have the means to take care of ourselves things aren't so bad so i can give up surfing or you know a hike or whatever um for a while uh, a lot of people are going to be hit pretty hard by all this yeah i think so and also you're a busy man by the looks of it you know you've got your podcasts you've got your main job um you know you do your speaking that was what you were going to be doing in london obviously um which is presumably going to have to slightly evolve, but um, I'm sure that your to-do list is uh, is healthy. So what's it looking like right now? What are you working on? Yeah, well, right now it's adapting all the plans, right? Um, you know, uh, you kind of mentioned the different roles. So on the one hand, I'm in charge of sustainability at the WSL, and so that's about looking at our events and our operations and figuring out how we can lower our carbon footprint, eliminate plastic pollution, reduce our event footprint, et cetera. So that's one whole job in and of itself. And then there's WSL Pure, which is our nonprofit, and I'm you know exec director for that. And so uh, that's our nonprofit organization focused on ocean conservation. We have a really big campaign in the works for this year, uh, and now all of that's had to change. So the WSL uh, a week ago announced that we canceled our Gold Coast event, which is the first championship tour surfing event of the year. And we then, uh, after that, soon after, canceled all of our events through May. So that's Gold Coast, Bells Beach, Margaret River, which are our three championship tour events. And then we have a number of other uh, qualifying series events, juniors events, longboard events, et cetera. So um, that's a hit to the business. And then it's a hit to our opportunities on the activism side to run our campaigns to announce our campaigns, use our broadcast, our broadcast for the WSL reaches millions of people around the world. So when we're up live showing our competitions, pure leverages that broadcast to communicate ocean conservation messaging. So without that, we're going, okay, how do we, how do we reevaluate and how do we plan our campaign thinking only on digital, only on social without broadcast, without in-person events. So that's kind of my, that's kind of my MO right now. The podcast actually, I think is going to get more time than it normally would. The podcast is something we started kind of, uh, internally was a little skunk works team that we got going, um, last fall or last, uh, last summer into the fall and got it up and running and we've been really happy about it. But, um, you know, now <laughs> it's an even better way to communicate with people because we're not having our events. We're not uh, pumping out as much content as we normally would. So we actually are maybe going to ramp up our production of the podcast or some of our digital content. So, um, yeah, to answer the question as busy as ever, just not traveling. Um, a lot of my job is traveling. And so it's less time in airports and less time, um, you know, running around and more time to just kind of focus and reevaluate and think about how we can still be effective.
when we were talking before we started recording, um, you know, we we mentioned the campaign that you've been planning, which is about ocean biodiversity, right? And it's linked to like a wider global biodiversity campaign, which would be great if you could explain in a second. Is that something you're still going to be able to execute right now? Right now, no. Right now, no, but eventually, yes. Um, yeah. Is that still a plan? Like as you adapt to a situation that you'll be able to, 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 pull that you know put it out there which is what you've been working on obviously for the last few months yeah yeah so um to set the context for for listeners um this year there is the united nations convention on biological diversity and that's happening in october and at that convention fingers crossed yeah yeah fingers crossed it's supposed to be in china of all places so um fingers crossed it still happens that convention is going to be used to set targets for conservation for the next decade. And the science community has said, we need to conserve 30% of our marine and terrestrial habitat by the year 2030, or we're in big trouble. Basically saying to protect, you know, really important biodiversity. If you think about the ocean, right? Um, the ocean provides every other breath that we take. And that comes from phytoplankton in the ocean. And it is very possible that we could harm the ocean so much if we don't protect it, if we can continue to extract from it, continue to overfish it, continue to pollute it, that it would not provide as much oxygen for us. So there's just one ecosystem service, one example that I love to use that everyone goes, whoa, because wherever you are on the planet, every other breath you take comes from the ocean. Um, trees, et cetera. And, and I think when we talk about biodiversity, like you can think about, okay, yeah, we need to protect trees or plant trees, but you can't just plant monoculture trees right you have to have all the different insects and different variable um, uh, species to create healthy forests so the goal is to protect 30 percent by 2030 this is very well known in the science and conservation circles and even at the government level within the un but it's not super well known in the public sphere your average person has no idea about it um you know even some of the nonprofit partners we deal with it's not on their radar because it's not you know core focus for their kind of local area and we think it's really important we think it's important to set these targets at a high level and have those goals trickle down um we've been working on this campaign with the nrdc which is the natural resources defense council here in the united states they're one of the best nonprofit orgs that are out there they're the ones who are suing the government time after time to say you need to step up your environmental protection so we designed this campaign to essentially try to rally the ocean community specifically uh, to support this initiative. Um, so the campaign is going to be called We Are One Ocean. Uh, it's going to live at weareoneocean.org. Uh, I don't know exactly when it's going to drop or when this episode will drop. So if this comes out before or not, whatever, it's okay, everyone. But um, we're trying to we're trying to get people to petition their government leaders to support 30 by 30. And we're doing that globally. And we have a coalition of partners, nonprofit groups around the world. Some of them have been on a podcast with Hugo and Servers Against Sewage and other groups who we, we want to be a part of this movement to say, hey, it's imperative that we commit to protecting these, um, protecting these, this amount of habitat. And then from there, each country is going to have to step up and create more marine protected areas or create more national parks and really truly protect them, um, actually highly protect them because there are various degrees of conservation and we want to make sure that we're protecting to the utmost degree. So it sounds like it's twofold. It's it's almost like an awareness raising campaign to like, to make people in the public sphere, like well, in public, like actually understand what the issue is, um, and then encourage people to act. So, what are the challenges of that? Presumably, the fact that you've 
got many different stakeholders um, with many different agendas that that perhaps um, might not be quite on the same page with it. Is that one of the big challenges of, of trying to pull something together like that? Because obviously when you describe that, you know, like it just sounds like an absolutely incredibly difficult thing to achieve to try and like we need 30%, you know, top line, we need 30% of, of like um, the earth's habitat to be um, protected, A, but then where do you even begin to start with that? Like to actually um, get buy-in on something like that. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, we're not the ones who are going out and conserving this habitat, and we're not the ones who are going to do all of the policy work that stems from it. What we're trying to do, our role in this is, the WSL has a large platform, a large microphone. We're able to reach millions of people around the world. So we're trying to say, okay, this is a unique way in which we can reach lots of people, specifically in the ocean sphere and the ocean community, to say we need to protect our ocean, right? Um, the groups like the NRDC, Wildlife Conservation Society, Conservation International, the larger international orgs are very good at working with the different governments to determine targets that make sense for those governments and to get the draft passed and, uh, sorry, the, the, the draft documentation and legislation passed at the UN level. This is way beyond, like it's, that's way beyond me. I'm not a policy expert. What I am and what we are at the WSL is we know how to tell stories. We know how to use our platform. We think about media. We think about leveraging social media and all that. So we're trying to fill that role. But what I like about our campaign and the way we designed it with the NRDC is let's come in with a top line, high level thing that everyone can get behind, right? Which is, yes, we all agree that we should protect more of the ocean. And yes, we agree that we should do it soon. Everyone can get behind that. And we're trying to push everyone to agree to that at a high level. From there, the workflow will come out of the draft that is agreed upon at the convention. And then it'll be up to those various governments and their nonprofits and orgs within uh, their region to determine those targets and continue to actually protect that habitat, right? So I just try to like, I hope that makes sense. I hope I'm not like too wonky here in terms of policy versus awareness. No, not at all. I mean, it's, it, like like we say, it's, it's the awareness raising part of this isn't it essentially yeah you know like it's helping people understand the issue in a tangible way um i think often it you know like it, it it can be quite difficult to to comprehend and get your head around so the more you can make these messages palatable and the more you can make them understandable for people um the easier they can work out how they can take action simply which is which is critical i think in this whole not just what you're talking about not just this specific issue but the wider sustainable environment conversation isn't it you know you you got to make it easy for people to comprehend and act really yeah 100 percent. and i think the one thing i've learned engaging with the un because uh in the last couple of years in this role like i've now i've been to the un in new york to see the high seas treaty negotiations happen i've been to the un climate meetings a couple times to understand how a lot of those negotiations happen like listen, big ships move slowly. They turn very slowly, right? Like Obama is famous for having said this. He's like, if we can point the giant ship that is America one degree in the right direction <laughs> over a long time period, we're getting towards where we want to go, right? You're veering in that course. He's like, but you can't swing a big ship around wildly. And I actually think that's something not to dive into politics, but that's something we felt the last three, four years is that America has been all over the place now because of our current administration. Um, when you look at the UN level, then, you know, hundreds of countries trying to agree on targets that are equitable and reasonable for everyone involved, that's really hard to do. And some people think that's, that's BS. 
you know, whatever they're doing, who cares? We need to work more on the grassroots level. But I actually disagree. I don't disagree. I understand the, the, the critique, but I do think that it's important at that high level to push those targets. Like I think the UN uh, sustainable development goals are great. I think the Paris agreement, yeah, it's not as great as we want it to be, but it got a lot of people on board and I am praying that we get an administration in that'll get back and that will rejoin the Paris agreement here in America and continue to put pressure on those other large countries to all push towards those goals. Once you have alignment, everyone pushing towards the same direction, that's really, really powerful. So that's where in this role, uh, with this campaign, I'm saying, yes, we need to agree on these targets. Like that's step one. If we can get alignment and get all the countries at the UN to agree on the targets, that's huge, right? Uh, and the best way to do that is for all of us to use our voice and tell our delegates, we want this, right? They need to know that we want this. If they don't think that the people want it, then they're not going to go to the, the meetings and actually try to support it. Instead, they're only going to hear from the industries, perhaps, and the lobbyists and the, the big business who has time to pay someone, time and money to pay someone to go get in their ear and say, you don't want to protect that part of the ocean. We want to go drill there, you know? So we've got to use our voice. Yeah, well, you know, you just use that um, example of drilling in the ocean, fight for the bite, perfect example of, of successful action in our sphere um, in exactly the way you describe, you know, like using the voice and actually making things happen and change. Yeah, you should definitely get Damien Cole on here at some point. I know, I don't know if you're flying Australia or if he's coming through London anytime soon or if you'll just do it over Skype now, but um Damien and the crew in Australia did an amazing job with the fight for the bite. Um, they led a grassroots movement that spoke up loudly and consistently. I mean, they just had turnout again and again and again and again, where the Australian surf community and the coastal community would show up, paddle out, create these huge, big, fun paddle outs with tons of people in the water saying, we don't want oil drilling in the great Australian bite, the Southern coast of Australia. And I think it's an incredible, but there's a chance that some other company comes back and says, all right, now we're going to drill. <laughs> you know, Equinor was the third company to, to um, try to go drill in the Great Australian Bite. Two other companies had gone in, decided it, they didn't want to do it, and bailed. So, pr you know, protecting habitat and, and, and protecting our environment often feels like you're playing defense. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of defending against this challenge and then that challenge and sure this one goes away, but there could be a new, uh, a new attack over here. So with 30 by 30, we have the opportunity to hopefully protect enough habitat that we don't have to play so much defense like that. It's just set. It's proactive. It's like, let's go out and protect this habitat and not worry about defending the entire great Australian bite, which is an important area from marine biodiversity. So yeah. that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And have you taken lessons that you've learned from your other campaigns into this this latest campaign that you're working on? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So other campaigns um, would be last year. We did we had two big ones. One was uh, our Stop Trashing Waves campaign, where we you know uh, essentially rallied surfers around the world to go paddle out and um, kind of like raise awareness for. Uh, International Serving Day and conservation and, and, and make a pledge to individually take more action. And then the other big one would be our Glowing Gone campaign, which was last year we did this campaign around our event in Tahiti and we changed the colors of the jerseys to these beautiful colors that are the colors that coral reefs uh, fluoresce when they're bleaching. And we worked with the Ocean Agency on this partnership to really just like 
bang that message through that event because Tahiti is obviously surfed over an amazing coral reef and those reefs have been bleaching as a result of climate change and ocean warming and so we thought okay we're going to lean into these colors and really use that as a way to like ramp up the, the the volume on what's going on in our oceans engage our athletes in this we took some of them out to do some coral reef restoration um, and what I learned from those two campaigns one um one big, big sort of message delivered powerfully is stronger than trying to like trickle something out over a long time. So like the glowing gone campaign, um, was very tight. It was done on the one event and we did it fully. It was executed across our broadcast digitally. We had the jerseys changed. I mean, we went all in, it was like guns blazing, like this is the thing. And that punched through really, really well. Um, versus you know trying to hit a drum beat again and again and again like we're, we're not a we don't have a ton of resources as a team we're a small team um wsl schedule and tour is crazy so we have to think really really sharply and say all right where can we focus our energy and efforts that this message will punch through and make sure that people get it um so that was the really strong lesson i think we learned out of the tahiti event Whereas the Stop Trashing Waves campaign was was massive and huge, but we were trying to do so much and the message was kind of broad. It was like, okay, it was World Oceans Day and International Surfing Day and we want you to take this individual pledge and oh, by the way, the WSL is going carbon neutral. There was just a, like a lot. Whereas Tahiti, it was very clear. It was just like, coral reefs are bleaching and this is bad, boom, right? Whereas we had a little bit, the Stop Trashing Waves campaign just had a lot to it and it was a little bit, I think, it was more blunt than Tahiti, which was sharper, if that makes sense. I, yeah, I got a couple of questions on that actually. So, did you know? Firstly, did you notice that in the the results of the campaigns? Then the second question would be, how do you at WSL measure the success of this campaigning work that you do? Yeah, well, I mean, in both cases, there were things that we'd never done before. Um, you know, all of this is relatively new. I've been at the WSL for a little over two years and Pure, I, I essentially was relaunching Pure when I started here. So launching campaigns like this has been new. So as in, just to stop you there, so as in for, for the organization as a whole, this is generally quite quite new territory. Totally. I mean, taking a stance like we have, um, this has all been new. You know, we... We supported the fight for the bite, for example, like just even kind of supporting that felt like new territory for an organization that was like, oh, do we want to take a stance? Will this be perceived as political? Are we going to piss anybody off? And we had internal discussions and ultimately felt like, no, this is the right thing to do because these are our people. These are our fans and our surfers and our communities that we care about. And they're stepping up for something important in an area that we really care about and that could affect the events that we have and the community so we're going to support them and we're behind their effort there um with the uh, stop trashing waves to go back to your original um question around the campaigns yeah these are these are new we hadn't done big full-fledged campaigns yet the wsl had not announced any sort of commitments to sustainability um, we had never ever changed the jersey the colors of the jersey before typically our jerseys are like red white blue they're pretty basic and so all this stuff was new so we're kind of like 
learning as we go here. We would set internal targets as far as what we thought success would be is, you know, how many people know and understand the commitments, how many people take action personally, um, how much reach did we get out of the campaign, um, how much, how much, how many dollars did we raise for our nonprofit partner on a given campaign, or how much awareness did we create for that nonprofit partner? So we kind of set benchmarks and you know, the stop trash and waves campaign was bigger overall, but it's because we put, we put more time and effort and energy into planning it. Cause it was, a, an internal initiative that we had time and energy to plan for. We kind of started it long ahead. Whereas the glowing gone campaign was kind of opportunistic. Um, but I would say it was more pointed cause again, we really went after it. We learned from stop trashing waves and then on, on glowing gone, it was, um, it was a better campaign, but executed on a smaller stage. So because it was executed on our Tahiti event, which is only a men's event and it operates in a different time zone and all that sort of stuff, if that makes sense. So, um, yeah, it makes sense. Numbers yeah. wise, stop trashing wave was bigger, but, um, you know, glowing gone, I would say was better executed. Yeah. I've got a question actually about the WSL from just from what you've, you were saying then, cause it's really interesting, isn't it? Like I'm really interested in that internal dialogue that you described you know almost like is it our place to be talking about this because you know the wsl obviously occupies culturally a funny position in surfing you know like obviously it's hugely important competitively but then at the same time people kind of love to hate on it quite a lot you know there's there can be there can be kind of a perception that it's quite, it reminds me of the BBC in this country occasionally, you know, people, it's there, it does a great job, but people love to kind of knock it a little bit. Um, was that what was kind of fueling that perception that you, that, or even that internal dialogue, you know, like, is it, should we be doing this? Because really as, as an outsider, the reason I ask that question is when I look at it, you know, the WSL, it has an industry leading role as far as I'm concerned, you know, whatever you think of it, like it should be talking about these things because the platform, as you just said a couple of times while I've been talking, is enormous. Um, but I'm just interested in the idea that you also had that internal dialogue of like, well, well, should we? How did you end up reconciling that then? How did you, did you guys just end up reaching the conclusion that, you know, yeah, we just need to talk about it. It's just something we should be doing. Yeah. Um, again, a lot of this has all been new territory and, um, you know, I haven't worked at a sports league before and thought about activism or conservation within that context. I just think that it's important. And I think that it's authentic to our sport and to who we are uh, and what we want to stand for and, um, what we try to represent to the world, uh, you know, surfing in the ocean, like the ocean is more than just our office, right? It's not just a place where we hold competitions for our surfers. It's our playground. It's our church temple, monastery, like whatever you want to call it, it is, it is more than just a place where we compete and surfing occupies this unique place where it is both competition and sport as well as like art or, you know, just expression. Um, and our fans, some love us and some critique us and, you know, that's fine. Like if fans are engaged and they care about what we're doing, then that's great. I think that's an important thing. And, you know, we see the critique and we pay attention to it. And, you know, there are times when we, we speak out about conservation and people say stick to surfing, um, because they feel like they don't want to hear it in their feed and we're only just supposed to be the sport. But that's why I asked the question, really, because because obviously that that that's the sort of tension, isn't it? And you you sorry to interrupt you, but you 
you've got to make that decision, haven't you, whether that you're going to do it anyway. And that's what's interesting, I think, you know. I think, listen, for every person who says stick to surfing, um, you know, just stick to the competition, there are 10 more people who say it's so great that you stand for something. And we love this. And I think if you look at comments online, often, you know, there are more negative comments than there are positive, you know, like when you consume something, yeah. you're like, cool, that's great. And sometimes you throw a heart, you know, it's something, but a lot of times you just consume it and you go, cool, whatever. But when something annoys you, people, that's when people speak up. And so we, yeah. we kind of take the MO that we've gotten a lot of positive feedback from fans, surfers, partners alike, and we want to continue down this path. And we think that that's going to be, it's the, it's the right thing to do. And we also think that it's going to be a good thing for the growth of the sport and for the growth of our, our fans. You know, um, it, it, I don't think modern businesses can sit on the sidelines anymore. I, and I don't think they should. I think they should have a stance, and I think we should all be trying to make a better world. Um, I don't know. I I, I just kind of no, I, I, no, <laughs> that's that's I, where I, my I, heart I, is. Like it's to yeah, me, it's yeah, very no, authentic I, for us to be doing this and for us to be telling these stories. The internal dialogues of like when and where do we do this, you know, are relevant because there's there's a there's definitely a limit. You know, there are certain things where we would say, okay, this issue, it's in an area that we care about, but it's maybe not our thing to stand up for because we've got limited bandwidth and capacity and we can't be hitting our people over the head, our fans and our, our surfers over the head with this all the time. So we're trying to pick and choose, but at the same time, um, support as much as we can. It's just, it's just, it's, it's authentic to us. Yeah. So you so you've been working for WSL for what a couple of years now? Did you say a little over two? Yeah, two and a quarter. And were, were you brought in to oversee this specifically? Was it a new role? Yeah. Um, so Pure had existed for a little bit before I, I got there. Um, the original mission was really focused on funding climate change research uh, with Columbia University. And oh wow, that's that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was a really unique re relationship with Lamont Doherty earth observatory that, uh, does some really world leading research. And it was like, Hey, maybe we can leverage the sport of surfing to help fundraise for this important research. Um, but ultimately like that didn't leverage what our tours are, what the business was becoming, um, the way we were moving more towards media, um, the way that we wanted to engage with fans, um, it didn't kind of offer a lot for people to, to be a part of. And so I was brought in kind of, they, they reimagined what it could be and said, all right, Reese, you're in the role. Let's bring this thing to life. Um, and you know, it's not just me. Like I work with all of the different departments of the WSL to make it happen. So, um, I think they liked me in this role cause I'm a generalist. And so I'm able to talk to the different departments, partnerships, marketing, broadcast events, et cetera, and kind of understand and just herd herd cats and get us all going in the right direction and um you yeah know, but it's a lot of that yeah yeah for sure for any project at the wsl um or any, yeah. or any business right um so yeah. yeah that's interesting that you describe yourself as a generalist so do you, you um what do you mean by that as in like you just you can spin many plates you can wear many hats like you know your background's brought you brought you to a position where you can manage different projects yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I come from um, startups just by way of background and, um, you know, I've kind of been in and around media and technology a bunch. But, um, 
you know, those roles have been varied from, you know, fundraising to build a business to doing corporate partnerships, uh, to doing online campaigns or guerrilla marketing campaigns to, you know, um, engaging with nonprofits. Like I, I've kind of just done a bunch of different stuff. And so I, I jokingly say I'm like a Swiss army knife. I, I can do a lot of things. Okay. <laughs> you know, a Swiss army knife can cut a thread on your shirt, but not cut down a tree. Um, yeah. If you ever need to get a stone out of a horse's shoe, then, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know where to go. Yeah. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm getting deeper in certain parts of my work, but, um, I tend to stay pretty broad and work across the different departments and we're really lucky. Like our team at the WSL is incredible. We have incredible people. Um, I shouldn't be leading creative because we have Jason Penning and Kim Hogan and, um, you know, Aaron and Dan on our creative team who are really sharp and have done so much great creative work. Um, I don't need to be leading marketing efforts and thinking about digital, you know, paid versus earned media because our marketing team is really stellar and they know what they're doing. I can come in with the, you know, what's cool about where I am now is I need to be broad enough to speak their language, but I can focus on the ocean part and the conservation part and say, Hey, this is what we want to get across. And then those teams come back with, all right, this is how we'll bring that to life. Um, so I say I'm, I'm, I'm broad in that I have to interact with all those different teams, but you know, my focus is trying to make the most impact for the ocean, whether it's the WSL's own work or engaging outside with partners and, and nonprofit work. And you mentioned that you grew up on the East coast. So you grew up surfing the East coast and presumably that's where your interest in environmentalism, sustainability, um, came from. I didn't, you know, I have to admit, I didn't start surfing until fairly late in life until I was about 20 with any consistency. Um, I dabbled a little bit, but it wasn't until that's I- all right. This is, a, this is a safe space. It's all right. <laughs> um, like there's plenty, plenty of vowels listening to this. It's all good. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I kind of, I started when I did a semester at uni at uni, New South Wales and, uh, Oh, uh, right. No way. Yeah, okay. Yep. And, um, so just, just throw, just throw yourself in there. Eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I started paddling out at Marubra and, and luckily never Jesus. had an issue. Um, and, right. and these were back in the days where the Aberdeen and brothers were, um, fairly notorious. Um, but you know, I never had an yeah, issue. There you go. Um, but no, I grew up in and around the ocean, uh, on Cape Cod. We don't have any waves on Cape Cod. Uh, well, it's not that we don't have any waves. We don't have any waves in my town. Um, they're kind of far away. And as a kid on the Cape growing up in the tourism industry, my parents owned a restaurant. I was busing tables, bar backing in the kitchen, doing work. And then I also worked at an ice cream shop and I worked at a ferry and like summertime for us was just hustle and make tips. Um, so I was kind of always just grinding. Um, so I just didn't really have the time, uh, to surf until later in life, but I was always in the water whenever I could. I was a lifeguard. Um, I learned to scuba dive when I was like 14. Um, you know, I've just been in and around the ocean as much as I could as a kid. And my hometown is home to some of the world's leading oceanographic research. So Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute is in my hometown, Marine Biological Laboratory, USGS. There's all these organizations that have discovered the Titanic or discovered the hydrothermal vents. Yeah. Dr. Ballard did that work out of Woods Hole. Um, so all that research was, you know, kind of you know, in my town. So I just grew up in and around the ocean a lot and in and around people who were sailors and ship captains. And, um, I always wanted it to be a part of my life and my work. Um, so yeah, that's kind of, that's, that's where I grew up. And then I started surfing, uh, in, you know, in college and, and then that just became, I was just hooked on it and, um, came back home and was surfing Cape Cod. It's, and, uh, then lived in New York for a long time, surfed in New York, in New York city, Rockaway beach, like, 
the best place. I love that place. I don't know if you've ever been, but if you if you can get no, there. No, I'm not I've never I've never been. I really want to go there. I really want to surf there. Get there in the summer, man. Or get there in August or September. Um, you know, when the when the hurricane swells start to kick up and the weather's still amazing. It's you know, it's a really special place. It's a unique, diverse place, a really strong community. And uh, it's good surfing on the East Coast with less sharks because Cape Cod nowadays is unfortunately really, really, really sharky. So, <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. It's a conservation success story. Ah, uh, okay, right. It's a, it's a good thing. <laughs> well, I I'm, mean... I'm being, I'm being, I'm being flippant. <laughs> Obviously, it's a good thing. Um, right, so, so it's like it, that's the result of a successful program, basically. Basically, so, you know, I mean, listen, I, I'm not the expert in this, but um, what people believe is that so one let's zoom out and say the sharks have probably always been there it's just our ability to know and see them we're seeing them more but two the seal population on cape cod uh, has exploded in recent years and that's a result of the marine mammal protection act from years ago which has now helped that population come back there's also some belief that you know with climate change and ocean warming you're seeing populations of species kind of migrate to different areas right and that i mean that's also just natural we as humans like to box animals into you live in this area of the world or you know this species only is found here or whatever it's like everyone's just trying to evolve and adapt and survive and so species are going to go where there is food for whatever reason the seal population has really 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 focused on the elbow of cape cod uh this like sandbar area and so that's food for sharks and the shark population has you know really just increased there and so now you can see great whites up and down the outer arm of cape cod very regularly so um yeah, it's uh, it's been scary. You know, that's an area of the world that is just all about tourism, and uh, it's really hurt tourism there and hurt the surfing community there for sure. Um, but like I said, it's it's their house. You know, I'm not at all advocating for anything to be done to to stop them. You know, of course, we're of in course. their yeah. ocean, so um, I just think people need to be smart and be safe. And yeah, yeah. So this role presumably is a really great kind of uh you know combination of all your passions and interests by the sound of it you know all the experience that you've accrued you know the lifelong passion for the ocean and conservation surfing bit of a bit of a dream gig then really 100 percent. yeah i um when i applied for the job i like made that almost very cliche analogy of it's the perfect sort of point of a swell the wind the tide the crowd all coming together that's what it felt like for me because at that point in my career I really wanted more purpose in my work um, it's an opportunity for me to reach a large audience and, and and have a big impact you know if we do anything at the WSL it's like wow we have a, we have a big impact um, you know I was kind of at a point in my career where I was like all right I got to do something I could go out and clean beaches all day long by myself but you know if I can go out and somehow inspire a million people to go be a part of their local community to go eliminate single-use plastic, then that's huge. Or if I can inspire a bunch of people through the WSL platform to reduce their carbon footprint, then that's way bigger than I can do on my own. And so that's the way I look at it. It's like, how could I find a role where I could amplify 
the issues that I think are most important. Um, so yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's definitely not without its challenges. A lot of people assume that my job is all like flying to remote places and going surfing and like having fun with pros and stuff like that. I'm like, actually most of it is emails and meetings. Uh, <laughs> there, there are weeks where I'm in 20 hours of meetings and you know, I get a hundred odd emails a day, but, um, you know, the, the work that we're doing is really important. So I, I wouldn't have it any other way maybe more surfing, less emails, but yeah. 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 Um, and what, what are some of the challenges that you find in the actual work in the actual storytelling awareness raising that you're, that you obviously really there to do? I think one of the biggest ones is just, um, it's just limited bandwidth and the, you know, I like, I want to help everybody from the smallest grassroots organizations to the biggest ones. And, and I want to reach as many people as I can. And this work is super urgent and it's feeling like nothing we do or I do is ever enough. And I think that's something that probably a lot of people and humans struggle with in general is that we all now like live these bonkers aspirational lives. And we sit on Instagram and they're like, why aren't we doing that crazy thing that that person's doing? And, um, so I struggle with this and just feeling like anytime I have to say no to engaging with a nonprofit partner around a campaign, um, it just, I, I just feel bad about that. And I'm like, damn, you know, I really want to help support them or like right now because of COVID-19, there are nonprofits that have to cancel all of their engagements. They have to cancel their in-person events. They have to cancel their, you know, one group I spoke to yesterday had to cancel their annual fundraiser and reschedule it for way later in the year. And who knows one, what the world will be like then Two, will all of their people who count on their annual kind of giving in uh, March, will they save it until September? So like now they're worried that are they going to hit their budget for the year? And to me, I'm like, shoot, you know, like how can I help that org? And I, I, I get bummed when I go, okay, those aren't all my problems. I need to stay focused on our issues. And so it's picking and choosing and prioritizing all that work just kind of like eats at me. Cause I, I want to help all the orgs that are out there trying to do the great grassroots work. And I want to build pure into, um, one of those orgs that is, you know, on the same footing and doing its own work as well. So it's just kind of prioritizing all that. It's, it kind of kills me because <laughs> <laughs> my ambition is sky high. And so it's just kind of, um, it meets reality <laughs> and gets disappointed. You're also doing a podcast, which from experience is also takes quite a lot of bandwidth, uh, mentally. Um, how are you finding that? Is that, is that something that, cause presumably that was, uh, did you have any experience of it? Like producing or presenting podcasts so um i mean hey fuck it didn't stop me but um like you know was it you know what i mean though like it's 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 again it's another another hat to wear like how's that been have you found that challenging or is, is it a release from the other work so yeah the podcast is actually really cool because i get to be a little bit more creative the work is different um so I really enjoy, like, I, I like writing. I, and I really enjoy speaking with people about the work that we do or the work that they do. I mean, that's, that was the impetus of the podcast. It was like, Hey, I'm going around the world and I'm meeting with nonprofit orgs or leaders or, you know, sustainability experts who do amazing things. This is interesting. Like, why wouldn't we want to share this with more people? And part of our goal at the WSL is really like, how do we enable and raise up our stars and raise up, you know, other people and be a platform unto the rest. Like the WSL brand is cool, whatever, but really it's like, we're, it's about our surfers and it's about our nonprofit partners. And it's, it's about these, these people in this community. Like how can we raise them up more? Right. So 
that's where we thought like, oh, this, this is cool. This is interesting. So the very first conversation I did kind of as a pilot, I just, um, I brought a Zoom recorder to Bali and recorded Melody and Isabel from Bye Bye Plastic Bags. And they're just like, they're so inspiring. There's these two young girls who started an initiative in Bali to eliminate plastic bags when they were like, I think 13 and 11 or something like that. And now they're 18 and, um, and 16 or somewhere around there, but they're just so inspiring. so I said, I'm just going to bring a recorder. I'm going to record this conversation and that's going to be our pilot episode. And I kind of brought it back to the WSL and said, this is like, this is cool. I think this is cool. I think there's an audience out there for this. And I think our fans would be into this. And that was kind of how we got it going. Um, in hindsight, podcasts are way more work than I thought. Um, <laughs> I <ain't laughs> not so, so like I totally have tons of respect for you. I mean, you've done what hundreds of episodes now, right? Uh, I've done a hundred, about 120. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot of work, man. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I feel your pain, but it's not all on me. Like I said, I have the WSL team. So we have a team that is leveraging our creative team and our marketing team and our, um, our, uh, like we have a music guy. So we kind of like all do our thing. So my role within the podcast is I get to kind of direct it, be the talent, basically and then i get to kind of back off and all the other assets and everything gets created and the promotion all happens and so i don't have to do all that work so so sounds blissful i'm sorry sorry buddy <laughs> <laughs> uh well i'll put i'll i'll obviously share it because i think you know listeners to this will very much enjoy what you've been doing i appreciate it um so a couple more questions because we're, we're kind of we're kind of getting towards the end you know you mentioned that a lot of what was driving your own desire to to follow this path was a you know a bit of a search for purpose almost mm -hmm. did that did, did that evolve as you got older was that something that developed you know because it sounds like you've been through quite a change you know you've mentioned like a bit of a thumbnail sketch of your career you know you talked about working in startups and you know to it sounds like there's been definitely a bit of a bit of an awakening let's say where you've kind of decided to focus more yourself on purpose-filled work is is that is that how it panned out yeah i mean short answer yes um long answer you know if you were to go back to um home footage of me as a six-year-old and ask me what i want to be when i grow up i'd say marine biologist and you know i wanted to study the ocean and be in and around the water and you know, career, you get into high school and you discover photography. And that was kind of like, oh, photography, then graphic design, then kind of like tech-ish startup internet stuff is interesting, video, film. So I kind of, I moved away from the sciences that I loved as a kid and moved into media. And I thought, all right, this is really compelling. And ultimately, I, I really wanted to be like a environmental filmmaker coming out of college. That's what I thought I would go do, like go do documentaries or something. And, um, but your career doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> like everyone yeah, right. comes out of high school or college or whatever. And is like, I'm going to go do this. And then it's like, you get a job offer somewhere else or you meet a girl or you, you decide to go travel. And so you kind of, you take what life gives you. Um, I ended up in tech and startups as a result of having friends in college who were into that. And we had some ideas and we thought like, let's try this. But my guiding sort of light was always, you know, pursue things that I was passionate about with similarly passionate people who are really smart and I could learn from, you know, and, and don't be afraid to take interesting opportunities. And so I've made several hard pivots in my life, whether it's changing schools 
several times between, you know, high school and then in college to moving cities to, you know, just kind of like not being afraid to go, this is something new and wild, but the people involved and what I might learn out of it are going to be fantastic. And so I kind of was willing to take those, those chances, which was great. And I'm very grateful for the career I've had for better and worse. Um, that being said, I hit a point where I'd been working in tech and startups for like eight or nine years and, you know, um, some successes, some failures, probably more failures than successes. And I just kind of, I was, I just felt over it. I was like, we're pushing pixels around a screen. You know, this is like pure internet 2.0, just hype and startups. And, um, I was just, I'd been grinding, you know, and I moved to New York thinking I'd be there for a year or two and then I would leave. And then I realized I was there for um, like eight years or whatever. And I was like, oh my God, I've been here eight years or going on nine years. And I went, wow, time flies. And at the same time, all the environmental crises that have, have always been there and have always been in the back of my head. I mean, I've been, as a kid, my mom had me pick up trash in our neighborhood and on the beach. And so I've always been aware of like plastic pollution and marine pollution and you know, I could always see that our coastline was changing and sea level rise was happening. And so you're always aware, but it just, social media was starting to bring it really to the forefront of our thinking and really pushing it forward. And I was just looking at it going like, oh my God, we we need to do more. We need to do it now. And so I just, I stopped feeling like, okay, I want to go have a career and then someday I'll do conservation work or someday I'll donate money or whatever it is. I was like, no, I need to, I need to go. I need to throw myself at this in some way and figure it out. So I kind of quit my job in tech and took off and traveled and um, volunteered with a bunch of different organizations and was trying to figure out how I could apply myself. Um, whether it was starting a new business that was conservation focused or, you know, going to work in sustainability somewhere or, um, you know, joining somewhere else, you know, I was kind of open to whatever made the most sense. And, um, I'm very lucky that I stumbled upon this role and, um, it feels like the best way I can apply myself, uh, at this time. Does that answer the question? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it really does. I, I think it's really interesting as well, because one of the, one of the things I always ask people on this podcast and I'll ask you now is like, you know, because, you you know, it's, it's, it's a brave thing to do, you know, like to, to make the change that you that you want personally to try and um, do something positive. So the question I would always ask and that I'll ask you now is like what, you know, for people that are listening that are equally driven to, to try and create some kind of change, but wondering where to start, you know, what's a piece of advice that you could give them? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. Um, and it's going to be different for everybody. I think start with start, start locally. That's kind of like a simple answer, but like find the groups around you that are local and like do your homework to understand who's doing what. Um, that's one thing that I've seen in this space that I love it when people start up new initiatives and it's great. And I love entrepreneurial ideas and all that stuff. But I also wonder if we weren't, if we were all working on, if we were all working together more and, and working, like, I I think sometimes there's this sense of, I need to go start my own thing versus joining an org and finding your role within that org or finding a way that you can help and support the orgs that are doing the work. Um, 
I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, I, I guess yeah. my, my point yeah, is because you, you, you see people who are like, all right, I'm going to go save the world by starting this new thing. And I'm like, well, what if that really incredible brain and entrepreneurial drive was inside of a larger company and pushing them to be better? Because again, like if you can push a bigger company or some other initiative and make them a couple percent better, that's probably bigger than the smaller initiative. And again, I'm not telling anyone not to start a, a, an initiative, a personal initiative or, you know, start your own company or anything. I'm, I definitely believe in entrepreneurship, whether it's for a for-profit or a nonprofit. Um, I just, I just sometimes think like, man, if we all really got aligned and got behind things together, we'd be doing better overall. So I guess map out the organizations that are local to you or that are covering the things that you really care about and see if there are ways that you can learn from them. Cause there are really smart people who are out there doing great work and you know, we don't have time to make mistakes. We need to be, uh, <laughs> kind of like we need to be on point uh, as on point as we can, as quickly as we can. And so learning from those people and those orgs who've been out there doing the work is really important. So if you're in the UK, like surfers against sewage is awesome, you know, and Hugo is really impressive. I mean, I'm assuming if people listen to this, they listen to Hugo. I mean, Hugo's amazing. He's done great work over years and you know, like how can you help surfers against sewage? If you're here in the U.S., how can you help some of those existing orgs that are already out there that are doing great work? Um, so I don't know. I, that may not yeah, be the no, most I think inspiring it's really, I, I, answer, but no, no, I think it's a great answer because I think I think it, it, it's practical and it's effective, and and also it it will work. It will help. It'll do those things that help people feel like they've got the purpose that they're looking for. And also it'll help those organizations. And like you say, they need that, you know, whether, whoever it is, they need this, they, they, you know, they need people to come in and, and give them new ideas and, you know, they'll be hungry for it as well, yeah. which is also worth saying. And this is where I'm like, I'll say, do as I say, not as I do kind of like, you don't have to quit your job and join this movement. You don't have to go do some radical change. Like I'm very fortunate that I've been able to do that. Um, and that I, I, I've like lived a lifestyle that enabled me to do that. I'm fortunate that I am of a certain, um, you know, demographic and everything that, uh, I've been able to take chances. A lot of people don't have that privilege, but whether you do or you don't, how can you change the organization where you are? Maybe you're at a company that isn't thinking about this stuff and should be, can you lead from the inside of that organization? And so I think that's super important. And what I'd also add is like, think about this as a journey. A lot of people I think love to be like, I'm going to jump to this new thing and go start a thing or get involved or whatever it is. It's like, you're about to go on a journey. You're going to learn a whole lot. You're going to go through a phase where you think, um, this is the number one issue. And then you go, Ooh, wait, no, this is the number one issue. This is how we attack this issue. Oh wait, actually this is maybe a better way to attack it. And you're going to understand the nuance of this. Like all of these issues are super, super complicated, you know, like getting to net zero, uh, carbon emissions, Yes, we need to do that. Um, and yes, we need to stop burning coal. We need to stop burning fossil fuels. Here's a tough one. Where does nuclear fit in that equation for you? And you have to kind of do the work of kind of figuring out, well, shoot, nuclear is clean energy and really important and valuable, but there's also nuclear waste and that can be a real mess in certain areas. So what does that feel like? So I guess my, my point is, is like, as for anyone starting out in this field, you're going to go down a journey and you're going to have to kind of understand your moral compass and stay tuned into that. And you need to know that you're on a path and on a journey. And I'd say stay on the journey because you're going to learn and learn and learn at each step of the way and continue to do that. And the more you do that, don't be, don't be afraid or don't underestimate 
your knowledge and how you can influence the few people around you. Um, Miladi said this to me, Miladi from uh, Bob by Plastic Bag said this to me, she's like, never underestimate your ability to influence the two meters around you, <laughs> which it's really funny that she said two meters. Now here we are in COVID-19 <laughs> socially distancing. Um, yeah. you know, like never underestimate your ability to influence those people around you. So like I've been down this path and it, I'm doing this work and doing this work, doing this work. And it's so rewarding when some friend or family member is like, Hey, you know, I've kind of been lurking on your Instagram and now I, I've really changed the way I do X, Y, and Z because of you, you know, and that's just me personally. That's not my work at WSL or, you know, using the WSL platform. That's like just people that I know saying, Oh, I see the way you and your wife have eliminated plastic by doing X, Y, and Z. And it helped me go down that path too. So I would say never underestimate that. Go down the path, be willing to learn and grow and change in this whole thing. Don't give up, stay on the path. This stuff can be overwhelming. Um, but don't give up, stay on the path and like, don't underestimate your ability to impact your local community and grow it from there. Yeah. It's a great answer. Okay. Final question. You've already, you know, you, you gave me a brilliant segue cause you mentioned COVID-19. Um, and the question I've got is does the, you know, with this very specific question, um, it's, it's basically based around the, the where we are now. And my question would be, does does the the fact that people have acted so quickly and there's been this huge um, top-down effort to solve this very specific problem give you hope about our ability to change the other very huge issues that we face, i.e. climate change? Yeah, for sure. Um, short answer is yes. I mean, seeing the way that we've mobilized you know, if in some countries for better and some countries for worse, but seeing how quickly we are able to mobilize when everyone gets aligned and agrees on this is a threat, this is a problem, we need to address it, is really inspiring. Um, I'm happy to see that. I think in particular, it's been crazy to see how governments have stepped up their spending, particularly, and saying, oh, the economy's in trouble, here's a bunch of cash. Because, you know, the question often is, oh, we need a Green New Deal, how are we going to pay for it? Um, or we need to, you know, get off a of coal. Well, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to do it? Blah, blah, blah. The fact that the U S government passed a bipartisan bill to like keep the economy afloat as quickly as they did. I'm like, all right, if you can do that, why can't we do this when it comes to climate, which is an existential threat. And so I think, you know, it just doesn't have the, the pointy end of the spear, which is people are dying quickly people are dying as a result of climate. It happens more slowly and it happens spread out around the world and it happens in deceiving ways like through air pollution and, you know, through climate migrants and all. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it's happening. It's just, it's just broad, right? Whereas COVID-19 is very clearly like, you know, it's this virus, it's going to kill someone, you know, maybe, and it's going to happen quickly and in a way that is awful. And so I think that's where everyone came laser focused. And it kind of goes back to our story before, like a broad message, a broad campaign is too broad. You need your messaging to be really pointy. So, um, you know, that's what COVID-19 has going for it. And I'm hoping (laughs) as far as campaigns go. um, And so, you know, I'm hopeful though, that one people, you know, one, we get our hands around this and stabilize um, the health and safety of our people first stabilize the economy, et cetera. And don't let this be, you know, an excuse to go back to business as usual. It's imperative that we use this as a learning moment. And then the climate movement can say, Hey, look, 
we know we can mobilize when we're really focused. This is really important. Let's get behind this together. But that's it's super challenging. So we'll see. That's brilliant, man. So we can do for us your birthday. <laughs> uh, I mean, Final question. <laughs> <laughs> an epic quarantine birthday. Um, I think uh, I'll be answering some emails for a while after this. At some point, going to take a walk, uh, get outside, try and get some vitamin D. And then I think my wife and I will maybe bake cookies later on or uh, have a birthday cake, <laughs> homemade birthday cake for two. <laughs> nice, man. Well, thanks so much for doing that. That was really great. I appreciate it. And thanks for the podcast and you know all the cool conversations that you're highlighting. And I love that you're highlighting the activism side of things. So um, it was a real pleasure to be a part of it and uh, looking forward to chatting again and meeting in person sometime. So there you go. That was me in conversation with Reese. Hope you enjoyed it. If you haven't listened yet, highly recommend checking out his podcast. Chances are, if you enjoy Type 2, then you'll definitely enjoy WSL Pure as well. You can find it on all the usual platforms. Yeah, go and check it out. Big thanks to Reese for taking the time with this one. Look forward to that wave when all this is finished. Nice one. Well, as you probably know by now, I release new episodes of Type 2 every month or so. They appear in my usual Looking Sideways channel, which you can subscribe to via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your usual podcast purveyor. If it's your first time checking out what I do, make sure you check out the back catalogue. I've got over 100 episodes, 120 almost, in fact, of interviews with some of the biggest names in action sports and other related endeavours. I'm also, at the moment, every Friday evening on Instagram doing Type 2 Live with my friends from Patagonia. I'm interviewing past and future Type 2 guests at 8pm British Standard Time on Instagram Live where we're discussing the issues raised in each episode and taking questions from people tuning in. It's going really well, very much enjoying it. I've had Chris Hines, Christoph Jorda, Lauren McCallum, and I've got plenty more coming up. So yeah, follow me at We Look Sideways or you can also get it at Patagonia Europe. 8pm British Standard Time every Friday. All right, that's enough for me. I'll be back soon. Nice one. Mm -hmm.